of anything. Um, many of you have probably witnessed from time to time uh, a skyscraper in a large city being built. Anytime a high-rise is built, much effort is made to go down to bedrock, sometimes even uh, many feet <clears throat> below the surface. Excuse me. They dig down, they excavate, they get way, way, way down till they get on something solid, and there they begin to build, and much time is given to the foundation. I remember going to the site not long after 9-11, going to the, um, the site where this had occurred and where the Twin Towers had once stood, and it was amazing to me to look down into that hole down deep where those uh, that structure actually began down where the foundations were it's always been something that has intrigued me even the roots of a of a tree i've made mention of this before but it astounds me that what you're seeing the branches that are spanning out sometimes large trees even up and down texas boulevard you'll notice this large trees that spanned out uh, for many, many feet on either side of the of the trunk or the main stem of the tree. And um, isn't it amazing that as much as what you're seeing with your natural eye above the ground, they say that there's a root system below the surface that you cannot see that is just as far spreading and intensive. So I, I think uh, I think that is indicative of us as apostolics, we'll never be able to be more than what we are in our foundations. We'll never be able to reach any further than we are rooted. We'll never be able to become any greater and go any higher, if I could say it that way, or bear the the burden that we need to without first giving careful attention to our foundation. And I know that uh, most of us, many of us, in this room have went through the different courses of Christian development or something similar. Many of us in this room have been a part of, of a church or many of this church over the years, and, and a lot of things have been uh, preached and taught, and some of them over and over. Most of us understand are acquainted with many of the things that will be taught during this series but you cannot fail to go back and to check and to fortify certain things. And uh, I want to talk about something that's real exciting here tonight. Psalms 105 and verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant. Everybody say covenant. He has remembered, he hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. He knows that God keeps his word. Isn't that comforting that God keeps his word? Psalms 106 and verse 45, And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercy. And let's go to the book of Hebrews now. The book of Hebrews. Chapter number 12, and I want to read verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, and speaketh, and we've learned this, through recent teaching of the book of Hebrews and preaching from the book of Hebrews, that this is really the theme of the entire book that speaketh, everybody say better, better things than that of Abel. We know that Abel was the son of the first parents, Adam and Eve, the first people that walked the face of this earth. This was their second son, um, and so we understand that's what he's referring to is back to the beginning. But now there is a 
better covenant. And I simply want to teach, if the Lord would help us here tonight, upon this subject, covenants, covenants. Now, I am not going to get into all the intricacies or all the details of every covenant of the Bible. There's really one covenant that I'm going to get to tonight and refer to, but uh, we're going to we're going to use some Old Testament examples to get there. Praise the Lord. Let's pray for the Lord's help and His strength and His anointing in the remainder of this service this evening. Jesus, we thank You for the opportunity to come together as Your people. I pray in God that Your Word would find lodging place in every heart and mind that is in this house. Praying that You would strengthen us through Your Word, that we could receive help and be blessed and our spirit strengthened through the Word of God. We praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. And could everybody say amen. God bless you for standing. You may be seated. I think it goes without saying that God is a God of covenants. You don't have to be a serious student of the Word of God to discover that, but really just a simple perusal of the Bible and a basic understanding uh, would help you to understand that this Bible is full of covenants that God has made with His people. I know that there's those that try to establish timelines in the Bible, and uh, we have what is called uh, dispensations that some theologians, that's their way of, of describing it or defining certain periods of time. And I don't know that I see anything particularly wrong with that, but I, I think that more of a biblical term is covenants. And covenants often are in, describe a certain time period that God was working in. And uh, when God established this covenant, uh, this was what He promised that He would do during that uh, period of time. Now, I believe that all of this is ultimately, as the Scripture says, bringing us to a covenant with Jesus Christ. Uh, the Scripture is very clear when it says that everything in the Old Testament points us towards Christ. And that if we're really going to understand the Old Testament, and how many would acknowledge here tonight, there's some aspects of it that it's hard for us in our Western minds or even our modern minds to get our mind around there is certain aspects of it that is difficult to understand, but I'm going to tell you they're more difficult to understand or, or it is more arduous to be able to understand it if you do not understand that it's all pointing to where we are right now and this new birth experience, this covenant that we have with our Lord. And I'm thankful that we're living in the time period that we're living in. I appreciate everything that I read about historically in the Word of God, I appreciate everything and every example that we have, and that's exactly what it is to be in the Old Testament. I, I, I'm, I'm completely thrilled about even the early days of uh, the church and, and the history of the church, but I'm glad that I'm living where I'm living. And God must have had some confidence in people that I'm speaking to here tonight to place you in this particular time, at this particular juncture, because I believe that we're living in not only the last days, but the last of the last days. I believe that the coming of the Lord is, is so uh, close, so near, that uh, it, it's even frightening to watch some people as they have such a cavalier attitude towards the coming of the Lord because we've heard it preached and taught about uh, all of our lives, those of us that's raised around the church, and if we're not careful, we can get a casual attitude about it. But I'm telling you, Jesus is coming. Amen. And I want to be prepared for His coming. But throughout the Old Testament, we see where covenants uh, were made between God and His people. And a covenant uh, simply defined, and, and I'm not using a dictionary, I'm just using uh, Jason Calhoun's definition, for whatever that's worth. But it's where two parties agree, come together uh, for a particular result or desired result. That uh, I'll make this covenant or this pledge, I'll fulfill this end of the deal. And then 
uh, you uh, will fulfill this end of the deal. And only by uh, me fulfilling my uh, promise in this, my part of the covenant, are you obligated to fulfill your part. And that's the way it is with our covenant with God. How many knows that we can never equal God and that he will always give more to us and bless us with more than we would ever be able to give to him. Any covenant with God, we come out the better. Any covenant that we make with God, we come out richer, more blessed, more fruitful. Amen. We get the better end of the deal. Praise the Lord. And, and that's the way that God designed it. But all of these covenants in the Old Testament are a foreshadowing of a covenant that is to come. And could I just say it or describe that covenant as the ultimate one? And that is this new birth experience that you and I have that uh, we have not the obligation to, which we do. We're obligated if we want to be saved. But it's, it's not to be looked at as an obligation. But we have the opportunity to repent of our sins. Aren't you thankful that you got the opportunity to repent of those sins and get that burden of sin off of you? And then to have those same sins remitted in the waters of baptism through being baptized in Jesus' name. And then to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And uh, right there, I've given you uh, the Acts 2.38 message, repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the unfilling of the Holy Ghost. And how many knows that constitutes New Testament salvation? Now, now I, I want to stop right here and say, or interject this, that that does not mean that after you have repented of your sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and filled with the Holy Ghost, that uh, you don't have to carry on in obedience to God and His Word and follow His Word and grow and mature in your relationship with God. How many knows that that's not true, that you can just uh, park yourself on a pew somewhere and just go through the motions and, and not, really, not really continue to grow and to flourish in your relationship with the Lord? But uh, I'm thankful that I have been saved when I was obedient to this Acts 2.38 message. I'm thankful that I have been saved, but I'm still in the process uh, of being saved also, if I could say it that way. I, I believe in salvation in three tenses. I was saved, am saved, and will be saved when that trumpet sounds. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I don't believe in a once saved, always saved doctrine. We don't believe that once you're obedient to Acts 2.38, then you can live however you want to, do whatever you want to, that God's just so merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving and empathizes with us as imperfect humans, and you can do just whatever you want to do and still end up in heaven. You know, there's some people that believe that. Matter of fact, they don't even believe that you've got to be completely obedient to Acts 2.38. Just confess your sins, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and that does it. It doesn't matter if you leave here tonight and go down to uh, whatever one of these beer joints are and get sought drunk and go home, kick your dog off the porch and slap your wife. You're still going to be saved. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But my Bible says, the Apostle Paul writing to his son in the Gospel, Titus, he said, you're going to be saved by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is when we're saved or when we're obedient to uh, Acts 2.38 and, and have this experience. That, that is a part of regeneration. He said, you're going to be saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In other words, that experience that you got initially has got to be renewed. It's got to be refreshed. Hallelujah. You can't live on yesteryear's experience. You can't, you can't live on 1979. You've got to get it all over again. You've got to be refreshed in the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. So, so it's important that uh, we realize that this is where it's all leading us. Uh, the New Testament covenant of being born again. But there are examples through the Word of God that is leading up to this, and that basically parallels in some way with this new birth experience. It's amazing to me, as I study the Old Testament, examples of things that, that God allowed to happen in people's lives and the way that these 
um, events, for lack of a better word, occurred and how they took place. They were not coincidental. But they all are part of the fabric of the Word of God that leads us to this new covenant that I'm teaching about tonight. I mean, examples all the way back to the beginning of the Word of God. Look at the life of Noah, and we're just going to go through a few of them. And, and the life of Noah teaches us many things, but probably the greatest thing that it teaches us is the importance of righteousness. Because that is, in fact, what Noah was noted for, was a preacher of righteousness. He was willing to stand at a time and in a society, a generation that was exceedingly evil. Matter of fact, it's comparable, according to the Word of God, to the society that you and I live in or the world that you and I are a part of. Because the Bible did say that these days were going to be like the days of Noah. Did it not say that? That these last days before the coming of the Lord are going to be much like the days of Noah. And it describes them. It talks about people marrying and giving in marriage. It talks about uh, folks buying and selling. It talks about folks that are uh, uh, concerned with, with pleasure and the things of this old world. And, and, and it describes the wickedness to a T that you and I are, are living in. And Noah's generation, even... Uh, even millenniums ago, back there in that Andalusian age, still struggled with some of the same things and the same spirit that was alive and well then is alive and well now. Oh, perish the thought that, that uh, you know, 2013, we got harder times than anybody's ever experienced, and it's worse than it ever has been. And it may be worse than it ever has been in your lifetime, but I'm going to tell you there's not a new devil He's still up to the same old things. We're struggling. We're fighting. We're in contradiction with the same old spirits of this world that existed in Noah's day. Can you say praise the Lord? Now I realize that people give themselves over to that. and The Bible does say that men shall wax worse and worse. And they have. And they have. Praise the Lord. But the spirits hasn't masticized into something that, that they weren't already. It's just that the devil has more influence on people perhaps now because they're allowing him to than they have in some, at least in our area or in our country. It just seems like it's widespread more now than it ever has been. Somebody opened the floodgates. Can I get an amen? And uh, it doesn't appear like it's going to get any better. According to the Word of God, it won't. But I believe that the church is still going to remain glorious, according to the Bible, and spotless if it's the church, and without blemish if it's the church, and it's not going to go out whimpering, it's going to go out with a shout. So that ought to excite somebody, as long as I stay with the church, I'm going to be all right. Praise God. But Noah, Noah teaches us about righteousness, so uh, we've described a little bit about Noah's day. It was a wicked, sinful, and evil day. It was, so, uh, it was so bad that the Bible says that God even repented that he had made man. And so this wickedness, this evil, this, this sin had to be dealt with. It, if I could say it this way, had to die. Isn't that exactly what repentance is? When you come to God, the sin of your life has to be dealt with. You have to repent of it. We talk a lot about Holy Ghost, and we believe in the power of the Holy Ghost, but I've never seen anybody really get the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about the genuine Holy Ghost. I've seen a lot of jibber-jabber, and I've seen a lot of people that they claim got the Holy Ghost, and I've seen them, I've seen them force them through like it was some kind of assembly line, but that doesn't do a person any good. You can only receive the gift of the Holy Ghost once you've repented of your sins. That is a prerequisite to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. My Bible says, Jesus Christ's words, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It doesn't exclude anybody. It doesn't have an exception clause for anyone. You will all likewise perish except you repent. So repentance is a necessary thing. It's not a pretty thing. 
It's not something that we relish most of the time in our flesh, but it's still necessary. It's not a, it's not a thing that, that preachers talk about that, that gains them a lot of popularity. It's not a thing that a preacher can describe and talk about from the Word of God that will get a whole lot of amens, but it's still essential, according to the Word of God, that a person repent of their sins. Amen. That's, that's a dying out. That's, that's why when a person repents, it's usually not, it's, they usually can't keep their dignity, and they can't come down there and keep everything just right and in place and, and get it done. There's sometimes that people, when they repent, they, they cry and, and tears are shed. You know why? Because the Scripture says that godly sorrow will work with repentance. When you're sorry, you cannot, be, you cannot really repent of something unless you're sorry for something. A lot of people apologize for things not intending to change, not intending to do it, but because they got caught or because of uh, the implications of, uh, of what happened as a result of, uh, of making somebody unhappy for their actions. And so they said, you know, I apologize for that if that hurts you, but not because it was wrong. I apologize if that hurts your feeling, but they're still not really apologizing for what they said. Oh, come on now, somebody. Amen. They're really not apologizing for the deed that was done, or they're really not, they're really not repenting because repentance is a change of direction. Repentance is to go a different way. And so for that, for sin to really be dealt with, it has to be repented of, first of all. Can I just tell you that if you go to the waters of baptism and are baptized before you repent, you went down dry and come up wet. That's about all that happened. There's not any really anything that happened as far as in the eyes of God until you repent of your sins. Before you can really be baptized and have your sins remitted in the name of Jesus, You've got to repent of your sins. That's a prerequisite, that you repent of your sins. Can somebody say praise the Lord? Come on, am I in an apostolic church? You still believe that tonight? You've got to repent. And so here in, in, in a foreshadowing, there was death to, to sin and evil and wickedness. How did, was it accomplished? God chose water. The earth was totally submerged in water. Rain fell. And the fountains of the deep were unleashed. And this is a type of baptism. The Bible says that Noah was saved by water. Praise the Lord. This was the way that God chose to cleanse the earth. Oh, I'm thankful that when you step into those waters, and I've got a lot to talk about here tonight, so I'm just going to make it quick. When you step into those waters of baptism, when you come out on the other side of that baptistry after having been baptized in Jesus' name, you, you can feel the, 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 the burden and the guilt and the filth and the corruption of sin has been removed. I've told many of you my story, how I was just seven years old when God filled me with the Holy Ghost and I was standing on a creek bank. We didn't have a baptism in our little church. And uh, that was in the first building that they had. They didn't have a baptism. It was just a little like a church-in-a-day type building. And uh, wasn't much to it. A uh, little shotgun building with section of pews on this side, section of pews on that side. And if you sneeze too hard, you could blow somebody's wig off if they're sitting on the back row. And so this was just... This this is a little small church, a little small gathering place, and uh, and I some of the kids, pastor's son was one of them, was a year older than me. He was getting baptized, and I really felt the tug of God on my heart to get baptized that day. And you know, my parents were concerned; they wanted to qualify the situation. They wanted to make sure that you know I was doing this with uh, with uh, the right motives and right spirit, and had repented and done everything. Of course, I'd receive the Holy Ghost at this point, but they were just kind of qualifying the situation. And uh, finally, I talked my dad into allowing me to be baptized. And I remember stepping out in the water. And I, I don't know that I had a full understanding of everything that was going uh, to happen or, or did I feel like it was going to be. I knew I had to do it. I knew what the Word of God says. 
I knew it was my responsibility to get baptized. But I, I, I don't know that I fully grasped how I was going to feel. And I, I was not somebody that was, of course, seven years old. I hadn't been in any uh, hideous sins. I hadn't done anything just terribly wrong. I mean, you know, may have stole a few pieces of bubble gum or something. I don't know. But I hadn't done anything inherently bad, bad. And, uh, but I was born in sin, just like everybody's born in sin and shaping in iniquity. And so I, I did. I was baptized. And I remember at seven getting up out of that uh, creek, climbing out of that creek, and feeling a difference, feeling a change. I'm going to tell you there's power in being baptized in the name of the Lord. So, it's very important that we realize this is the method that God had chose. And this is a foreshadowing of it right here with Noah as that he was baptized, or the world was, or the earth was submerged or baptized, if you want to say it that way, with water and cleansed. And then we see another picture of this new birth experience with the dove. You know how that he released that dove. It flew over the earth. I don't know how far out it went, but it flew over the landscape, and it returned. The only place that it could land was on that ark. Now, that was not the only place that was afforded for a bird to land. We know that there was a lot of floating debris. There was a lot of dead carcasses that were floating out there. The raven was sent out. And the raven, because it has an entirely different nature, it never returned. But the dove came back because it could not find a place, the Bible says, for the sole of its feet. It wasn't that there wasn't a place, some floating debris, some filth or corruption that was out there for it to land on. But it would not because of its nature. This is a perfect type of the Holy Ghost. In fact, in the New Testament, this is one of the this is one of the things that is used to symbolize the Spirit, and you still see it today in, in logos and different things, the dove as a symbolic thing of the Spirit. Can I tell you that the Holy Ghost is not going to, and, and I'm using this, this term to describe it, it's not going to light upon somebody. It's not going to rest upon somebody that is unclean. Praise the Lord. Thus, the need for repentance. Thus, the need for coming down to an altar and getting your heart in condition for God to fill you with His Spirit. The reason why most people cannot receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is not because God is not able. It's not because His promises fail. It's not because uh, that, that they're not eligible because of uh, any other reason besides this. They fail to repent of their sins. When you repent of your sins and have faith towards God, the Holy Ghost is a gift that God wants to give to you. It's not hard to receive the Holy Ghost. I said, I want to say it again. It's not hard to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You can have it. Praise the Lord. And so, uh, this is Noah's story is is pointing us all the way back there in the book of Genesis. It's pointing us towards this present day experience. Abraham. Abraham, overall, his life teaches us about faith. How many knows that faith is critical? The Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God. He that uh, cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So faith is is. Vital. It's foundational to your living for God and coming to God. But Abraham, we see in his life, we see things and experiences that he had that point us towards this present day experience. Genesis 22. There's an altar that is built. He is asked to bring his only son, place him on that altar. Now we know that God did not allow it, but this is a foreshadowing is what I'm saying. Of, of an altar and of death and we know that there was a there was a ram that was provided by God and uh, and and but there was sacrifice there and there was an altar there and there was a death 
and, and it's just in, in foreshadowing repentance to you and I. And then also, when you go down just another chapter to chapter 23, you find that there's a burial that takes place. Sarah, his beloved wife, is buried, and, and he's negotiating with uh, the guy that owns the field. And this is uh, Machpelah, where he buys this land, and uh, he's negotiating about it. But he, he, he doesn't try to, to uh, bicker with the price and drag down the price or to get a better deal. He pays full price for this piece of property that would serve as a burial ground, not only for his wife, but also his son Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and then Jacob's wife, Leah. So this was an important piece of property that was being purchased here, and there was a burial that took place. This, again, foreshadowing something that was to come. And then in chapter 24, now isn't, isn't it interesting, the sequence of this, 22, the death, uh, or the altar. And then 23, burial. In chapter 24, we find him sending his servant with gifts, with gifts. And this is a perfect type of uh, uh, the bride of Christ when he uh, sends Eliezer down to find Rebekah by the well and uh, chooses her and offers her and gives her these gifts and brings her back and and there's a marriage that takes place. All of this could be preached uh, that uh, the Lord is, is coming for us. And there's going to be a marriage, supper of the Lamb someday. And we're all going to, to live in a different land. And he asked her the question, the servant did, which is typical of the preacher. He said, are you willing to go with this man? Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to make whatever sacrifice has to be made to go with this man? And, of course, she agreed to do it. She didn't know how long the journey was going to be, really. In her mind, she never went that far. She didn't know how rough the journey was going to be because they had to ride on camels. And I don't know if you've ever ridden on a camel. I did in a circle about the uh, diameter of this platform for about, uh, about three minutes, and it was all I wanted. It's not riding like, like riding a Tennessee walker or a Missouri fox trotting horse or something like that. It's not nearly that smooth. It's like riding a jackhammer. And that was, that was what she had to ride upon. And I, I, I have the figures written down somewhere how many miles. Now, it wasn't just a 20-mile journey. That would have been pretty rough. We're talking about hundreds of miles. I think it's something like 600 miles that she had to journey to get to where her groom was. I don't know how long this journey is going to last. I don't know how rough it may get between now and then. But I made a commitment to God that I'm going to go all the way. I made a commitment to God that I'm going to walk with him and trust him, be obedient to him, live for him, serve him with all of my heart. Hallelujah. But she received gifts. The, the, the bride received gifts. They were given to her. Before she even met Isaac, she was given these gifts. The gift of the Holy Ghost is the earnest of our inheritance. You make this commitment, you'll come with me. Here, here you go. I'm going, to give it, I'm going to give you something to make it worth your while in the process. Acts 2, Peter said, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm thankful that I got that heavenly gift. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It makes the journey a whole lot easier, doesn't it? And then, of course, there is men like Moses who, who teach us, among other things, he teaches us about obedience and, and a person humbling themselves. And some of these lessons he had to learn the hard way. And, uh, but one of the, the, the greatest events, and there's many in Moses' life that, that happened under him and his leadership of Israel was, of course, the institution of the Passover, the first Passover. And God gave him this plan, and he told the people of Israel how it was going to happen. And we know that they, they all, every family, every man had to take a lamb. And uh, it couldn't be the old... Oh, mangy-looking one or whatever. It had to be one that was spotless. It had to be one that was right, one that passed inspection. And then uh, there was the death of that lamb. Simultaneously with that night when there was the death of the lamb and they consumed it, there was also the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Why is that important? 
when, when, when God was delivering his people, there was blood that was going to cover them and help them, and they were entering into a new place in God, a new level in God, a new relationship with God that had never before been experienced. But there was also the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Can I tell you that in salvation, it, it, it is so powerful. Uh, when we repent of our sins, are baptized in the name of Jesus, and are filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, we understand, we know that, uh, that, that, that the future of Egypt through the death of this firstborn was abated. The future uh, of Egypt, now we know that Egypt continued on as a nation, but I'm going to tell you there was never really a serious threat to the nation of Israel ever again after that night, after that particular point, after they were drowned in the Red Sea, and I'm getting there. But I'm just telling you there was a death that took place. And we understand that this is also indicative of repentance. And there has to be a death. There has to be a death. There was a death of a lamb and there was a death of the firstborn which impeded the future of Egypt. Aren't you thankful that Egypt loses its hold on you? Aren't you thankful that the influence of the enemy is lost? No, not, not, that, not that you can never go back into sin. Not that you can never be lost. Not that you cannot return back, as the Scripture says, as a dog to its vomit and partake of the things that God has delivered you from. But aren't you thankful that you don't have to through the power of the Holy Ghost? And so the Bible says that God, in His plan, He could have chose many different ways uh, to get them out of Egypt. But it's almost like He blocked every other way but for them to go through the Red Sea. They got Egypt behind them, or the Egyptians behind them over here. They got mountains or whatever over here, and they're just cased in. I mean, they've got to go through the Red Sea in order to escape. This is the way that God planned it, for them to escape. Uh, Egyptian bondage just was the only option. There's a reason for that, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, or 10 and 1, rather, Moreover, brethren, I would not have that you should be ignorant. I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now let me, let me talk about that for just a minute. We know that that sea was water, right? And they, they were able, they, they went through by miraculous passage that God had provided for them. But this is typical of something that was to come. This is typical of baptism in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. And then it says that they were also baptized by the cloud. Now this is typical of the Spirit. And this cloud was a cloud that protected them by day from the sun. And it would move. And as it would move, then the camp of Israel would move with it. If it didn't move and there was instances where it didn't, they didn't move. Sometimes it moved more than other times, perhaps. I don't know. But when it moved, they moved. When it, when it moved, they went with it. And then there was a pillar of fire. That same cloud by day was a pillar of fire by night that kept them warm because the desert could become very cold. This is all typical of the Holy Ghost. And it will guide us on this journey. It will help us on this journey. It will lead us on this journey if we'll follow it. Can you say praise the Lord? But this was, this was part of the covenant that he had with Moses. And then, and I, I'm getting towards the conclusion here. Then there was, of course, and it goes on and on. I'm just giving you a few. Then, of course, there was the man Naaman who was the, captain of the Syrian army in the scripture and this was during the time of the prophet Elisha and he teaches us about the importance of ministry everybody say ministry ministry or a pastor in our life because Naaman was a man of influence he was a man that was a leader of men he was a man that was a man's man. He was a man that had been trained to train others. And he was used to people saying what he wanted them to do or doing what he wanted them to do or what he said to do. And he was a man that was used to telling people what to do, not being told what to do. 
And so when he came to Elisha's home, where Elisha was because of the witness of the little maid servant that, that told his wife about Elisha the prophet, he went down to, to uh, uh, Elisha's home, and, and Elisha didn't come to the door. He sent Gehazi. And that, that in itself probably infuriated him a little bit, knowing his notoriety and who he was and how important he was. It kind of disturbed him, but whatever. And, and then if he wasn't already kind of set for, for a bad mood, Gehazi said, well, let me go ask him what he said. And he goes and asks him, so this fellow's got leprosy out there. I don't really think that Elijah done a whole lot of thinking or processing this or anything. I don't think that he said, okay, uh, Naaman's going to show up, and this is what I'm going to make him do just to humble him down. I think he could have probably told him to do whatever within reason. This didn't seem reasonable, but he probably could have told him whatever, and the authority of his word and who he was and the anointing of God would have carried over and God would have blessed that as long as it didn't contradict his word. But he tells him, go, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he goes out and tells him that. And, uh, I mean, he gets mad. He, the Bible said he was wroth. He, he's foaming at the mouth. He's so mad. I mean, he is. he's worked up. He's throwing a hissy fit. He's stomping around, kicking dust and He's angry about it. He said, you know, I can think of a lot of other rivers. And he starts naming them off, the rivers of Damascus. And uh, some of them I can't pronounce. And, and uh, he just goes on and on and on about these other places that would be more suitable. And why the Jordan? You see, at one point or another, Naaman had to do what all of us had to do. He had to bring himself under subjection. He had to be willing to listen to the messenger. I'm going to tell you, if the gospel is going to come to you, I know that God could choose, he could choose a, an angel from heaven. He could choose some kind of uh, special supernatural thing to come and to get the message across. He could write it in the sky if he wanted to. But for whatever reason, this is his plan. He said, by the foolishness of preaching, I have chose to save them that believe. So there's always going to be the need for an apostolic preacher in a person's life. And we're all going to have to adhere to it. That's how we're going to come into this thing, and that's how we're going to stay right with God is by hearing the preaching of the Word of God, allowing ourselves to be preached to. Praise the Lord. And so there had to be the death of will, the death of rebellion, the death of stubbornness. Again, typical of repentance. I'm going to tell you, repentance is more than just repenting of sins committed, but it's also repenting of your old will and self-will and selfishness and stubbornness and hard-headedness and stiff-neckedness. Do I need to go on? You've got to die out to that. You've got to be, you receive the Holy Ghost by yielding yourself to God. You can never yield yourself to God unless those things are repented of. Praise the Lord. And then, of course, the dipping in the Jordan was typical uh, in our foreshadowing of water. Again, being baptized, he dipped in the Jordan. And then, as a result of this, this obedience, dying out of his will, dying out of what he thought and his opinions, his logical understanding of things, and willingness to do what was told him to do by the man of God, the Bible says that life was restored to him, not just to the place that it had been before this disease he had contracted came upon him, leprosy. But the Bible said, and I believe it says it here, I'd have to look over it again real quick, but it was like baby skin, right? Did it say that? I hear pages turning and people looking and whatever. It says that. I'm just telling you, it says it. It says like baby skin, or refers to that like that. Like baby skin. That means new, brand new, brand new, all over, fresh. Be one thing to get restored back to what you was. That'd been great. But that's all. I'm going to tell you, when you get the Holy Ghost, it's like the slate has been cleaned and you get to start all over again. You're not bound by any of those old natures and old things and 
You're not restricted by any of that. No matter what the past is, you don't have to live in it anymore. Amen. That's why you need to stay full of the Holy Ghost, sir. That's why you need to stay full of the Holy Ghost, sister. course, the last that I'd like to refer to is David, who teaches us how to worship. How many knows that worship's a very important aspect of our relationship with God? Some people say, well, that's just not my nature. I'm not, I'm not really a worshiper. Baloney. Baloney. Matter of fact, in your nature, the one thing that is intrinsic with every one of us is we're all worshipers. Some of you don't worship God, but you worship money. You worship position. You worship power. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something without exception. Some worship things in this world, sports heroes. Some worship perversion. That's their God. Everybody worships something. Praise the Lord. But your intention and the reason for your creation, he said, Let everything that hath breath praise ye the Lord. That was the reason why he created you. Not to puff cigarettes, not to pop pills, not to shoot drugs, not to hurl obscenities. But he gave you breath for one purpose, and that was to be a worshiper of God. Can you say praise the Lord? off that business that this ain't my personality or isn't my personality. This isn't the way I'm made up. This isn't the way that I'm wired. Praise the Lord. I don't get with that. I don't get with non-responsive people to the Word of God because I've seen far too many of them get excited over things that are a whole lot less important. Amen. Do I need to dwell on this a little bit here tonight? I kind of feel like dwelling on it because some of you are so deadheaded, it embarrasses me sometimes. Because I wonder, I question your salvation. If you can't get excited about church, but you can get excited about everything else in the world. I'm going to tell you, before I get excited about this or that that is out there that is going to perish, and the Bible says that rust's going to destroy it and moss are going to eat it, I guarantee I'd get a lot more excited about this experience with God. And you'd have a whole lot better chance of keeping it if you could stay excited about it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. People that come to church and they think they're really doing something when they put their hands together three times. Or really they think they're doing us a favor by being here in church on a Wednesday night. We'll talk about that a little bit. Amen. I'm going to tell you, God's not impressed. He's not impressed with you doing what you're obligated to do. He's not impressed with you fulfilling the requirements. Come on, but he's looking for somebody that will worship, and worship is always beyond what is required. Worship is always going beyond what is absolutely necessary. Hallelujah. Come on. Come on. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's important that we worship God. That's when the blessings come. If there's nothing put on the altar... There's not going to be any fire that's going to come down and consume it. There's going to be no blessing from God. But we don't bring a lamb, and we don't bring wrestle a goat in here. We don't bring an ox in here. Thank God we don't have to do that. But we come in, we give a sacrifice of praise. Hallelujah. And it's refreshing to come in here and take off the garment of heaviness and put on the garment of praise and have the opportunity to praise God and to feel His presence. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. We still believe in hand clapping in this church. We still believe in shouting in this church. We still believe in singing in this church. We still believe in leaping for joy in this church. Bible said the dead praise not the Lord. Not a truer scripture that needs to be underscored anymore than right now in the 21st century in most apostolic churches. The dead praise not the Lord. 
You tell me, you show me a church that doesn't worship God and they're lifeless and they can't get excited about anything. They're not thrilled about the oneness revelation anymore. They're not thrilled about this Acts 2.38 message anymore. Nothing excites them. They've seen it all. They've done it all. They've felt it all. And they're not excited about any of it anymore. I'm going to show you a dead church, a barren church, a lifeless, without revival church. But you show me a church that knows how to worship God, that comes in singing, that comes in glorifying God, that comes up lifting the name of Jesus, that comes to church with a praise upon their heart. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You say that makes me uncomfortable. I hope to God it makes you uncomfortable. I don't apologize for making you uncomfortable. You ought to be uncomfortable if you're a deadhead. You ought to be uncomfortable if you sit there mom when you come to church. You ought to be uncomfortable if you come and cross your arms when God went to Calvary's cross and shed his blood so that you could be here tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So I don't like that. I'm going to tell you something. You need to learn to like it because it's my responsibility as a preacher to keep that fire burning in this house. And this has disturbed me and I hadn't said a whole lot for a long time and I'm not here to make a rebuke out of this sermon tonight. But it has disturbed me lately. It has disturbed me because I know, I know what we're capable of around here. I know what we're used to around here. And I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate everybody that may have came from somewhere else to come in here. But I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to change us. You're not going to change. You got, you're barking up the wrong tree. If you think you're going to change us into some deadhead, methodical little group of people with pinheaded minds, we're not going to do that. We came in this thing shouting, and bless your heart, we're going to go out of this thing shouting. Praise God. And your response or lack of response does not intimidate the rest of us. We're still going to worship God. We're still going to praise the Lord because that's what this house was built for. Praise the Lord. David was a worshiper. And when he assumed the throne... There were some deaths that took place. Yeah. Even Jonathan. Saul. For him to be able to reign like he really needed to reign, there were some deaths that took place. Repentance. And then the Scripture says that he sought about to take the city of Jerusalem, which belonged at that time as the city of Jebus. It belonged to the Jebusites. And they mocked him and said, we're going to put the blind, the maim up here. To defend our city. We don't have to use our army to defend our city. They were arrogant about it. And he 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 got so wroth, he said, I'm gonna he told his army, he said, he said, first one that goes up there, he said, I'm gonna promote him. I'm gonna raise him up through the ranks. If you go up there and you you break into this city and take this city, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that you're promoted and you're something in, in my kingdom. And uh he said it this way in the in the New King or the King James version. It says, "He said, go up through the gutters, which was the waterways, to take this city to to, to get into that city. And this city, God is going to place His name there. Is that what the Bible said about Jerusalem? He's going to place His name at Jerusalem. And then the only way you can get your name, get to where the name is, is is, is through the water, through the waterway." I'm going to tell you, that's, that's exactly the way it is to this day. The only way that you can get the name applied is not to be, not to be wiped down with a wash rag. And I know it's gotten off dry in Texas, but we had not got that bad. I heard, heard one person said it got so dry that the Methodists were using wash rags and the Baptists were sprinkling and, and the Pentecostals were using wash tubs. That's bad. Hadn't got that bad around here. We're not going to do that. No matter what kind of drought we have this year, we're not going to go that far. But you've got to be submerged. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So where do you, where do you get those scriptures for total immersion and, 
and totally being covered in waters of baptism. I'll tell you where we get it. Logic itself or just reason itself and nature itself teaches you some things that when you're buried that you're completely under the ground. But we go further than that. We know that John the Baptist, the Bible said that he baptized there because there was much water there. The Bible said in Acts chapter 8 that, that uh, the eunuch, when, when Philip baptized him, they went down into the water. Why was that necessary? They could have went by a mud hole somewhere and sprinkled him if that was all that it took. Oh, you better get baptized the Bible way. You better be buried with him in baptism as the Scripture says. Not sprinkled, it said buried with him in baptism. And so, that's where the name is, and that's how it happened. And then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, David, brings it back. And he brings it, which is typical of the presence of God. He brings it with worship. I'm going to tell you, that's... I've never seen anybody, you may have, and I'm not saying God's not able because God's sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. And I know that I don't have scripture in verse for this. But I've never seen anybody receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, we know I do have scripture for this, but you've got to repent, as I've already stated. That's a must, a prerequisite from the Word of God. And then you've got to have faith. But always it seems that there is worship and praise given unto God. And it's through that. He said, I live in Judah. And Judah means praise God. He inhabits or he lives in the praise of his people. I'm going to tell you what, when you get the Holy Ghost... Is usually, if I was to take a survey here tonight, every one of you is praying and praising and worshiping God when the Holy Ghost came upon you. Can you say amen? That's why we encourage people after they've repented their sins to start believing God and worshiping God. Hallelujah. And I could go a step further with that and say that he lives in the praise of his people. Well, he, he doesn't live where there's not praise. And I'm not saying that, that you've got to you got to praise 24-7, but our life is a praise. I mean, when I say praise 24-7, you don't have to be singing out of the songbook 24-7 to be praising God. You don't have to be quoting Psalms 24-7 to be praising God. But your life should be worship unto the Lord, and the way that you live your life should be worship unto the Lord. Can you say praise God? Let's clap our hands to him and give him thanks. Would you stand to your feet right now? But the ultimate covenant, this new birth experience, is when we do what we can do. That's repent. That's what every one of us can do and what every one of us must do in order to be saved, right? We can repent. And then the preacher does what he's commissioned to do. He baptizes us and says the name of Jesus over us in baptism. And our sins are remitted. So we do what we can do, repent. The preacher does what he can do, he baptizes us. And then God does what he can do, or what he does. And that is he fills us with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And I'm going to tell you all of those things speak of something more than just what we see superficially there in, in those, those sentences that I just said, and those statements I just made. There's deeper meaning to every one of them. There's some responsibility on your part. And then there's some responsibility of the preacher. It's our responsibility to be able to hear that, that preacher along this way. And then God, he's always going to come through with his part of the responsibility. Can you say Amen. Would you lift your hands and thank Him for this new covenant? Would you thank Him for this new birth experience? Thank you, Jesus. I thank you for New Testament salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, let's give thanks unto the Lord. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. 
that I'm blood-bought. I thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah for this New Testament salvation. God bless you tonight for being such a great group of people and hearing the Word of God and responding to the Word of God. Let's come back believing Friday night, all that can, and then, of course, Sunday. And the outreach, if you can be here on Saturday, we're going to try to get as much uh, done. And there's fish fry, I believe, on, on Saturday, all the, all the men. Praise the Lord. That's going to be a good, good time. I'll tell you what. Fish fries are always awesome. Praise God. We've had them fishing full time. Just best about to make, make this thing happen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.